0: Welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Rustin Pere, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron Johnson. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I get together to talk about some topic within the wild and wonderful world of ecology, natural history, and evolution. And uh, this week, we're choosing to talk about beaches, right? Yep. Right for the summer season. Exactly. Exactly. This one should hopefully come out on time as well. We've had issues with that in the past, but... Uh, this one will definitely come out sometime during the summer, so it'll be appropriate.
1: Yeah, we've had issues between the two weeks of episodes releasing, where sometimes we do a holiday-themed episode, and we miss it entirely. Not close in the slightest.
0: <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Valentine's Day episode coming out in the middle of March was a bit of a hiccup.
1: <laughs> Not our finest moment.
0: The Beaches episode will come out during the summertime. So, we're getting better, is the message you should take away from this. Baby steps. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. We got to start somewhere. Anyway. So how was the research for this episode for you?
1: Uh, you know what? I found something. And you know what? I, you just stumble across this topic and you're mm-hmm. like, you know what? That's good. I'm going to use that. Uh, I'm going to tuck it away for later. And then once I realize you had brought up beaches, I'm like, okay, I can make it work. Okay. What about you? Oh, I kind of had a few things in mind,
0: but then I decided to just kind of ditch all those and go with something totally different that, I don't know, I think is really relevant to beaches today in general, actually, and that's something that a lot of people should know about. So, I don't know. I thought it turned out well, all in all. All right. Well, want to get into it? Sure thing. Am I up first? You're up. All right. So, this time around... Normally, when we do a topic like this or a theme, we'll each of us will pick like a very specific thing or place to talk about within that theme. I didn't do that as much with this one because I picked a topic that kind of applies to lots and lots of beaches throughout the world. Not necessarily one specific beach or one specific organism that lives on a specific beach. So this is an issue that I want to talk about that affects beaches worldwide, particularly ones in the United States. But I don't know. I don't think the whole episode will be all doom and gloom. I am going to provide a potential solution to this problem and then kind of, I guess, let the audience decide whether we should go with the solution or just kind of hold back and see how things play out. This problem is sediment erosion from beaches. So Yes, you heard me correctly. Beaches are disappearing on large scales throughout the United States and the world and the world in general. And technically, this is another geology topic. I kind of realized when I was doing the research that I've done a lot of geology talk in the last few episodes. But like I said, I feel like it's a really important topic and one that a lot of people will care about. So and it's surely important to nature and ecology as a whole. Right. Plus, I feel like a lot of our listeners will want to know how and why their beaches are disappearing and what we're doing about it. So it's really important, especially in coastal areas. So the problem in and of itself, as far as a larger description is concerned, is that beaches face a number of different threats. As we've discussed on the show before, like when we did the islands episode, I talked about barrier islands, and a lot of these beaches are on barrier islands. And so they face different, they, they face the same kind of threats. I'm going to kind of come at this from a different angle than i did in that episode but similar kind of situation so the chief threat to beaches is climate change because rising sea levels causes beaches to retreat inland and then eventually disappear altogether as the sea level continues to rise however in their naturally occurring form beaches are pretty resilient ecosystems that can withstand rising sea levels and any number of different storms like i talked about in the barrier islands episode this is kind of why a lot of beaches exist, right? They kind of act as this a uh, barrier for the, uh, for the land against any kind of storms that might come in and otherwise batter the land that instead are kind of blocked by the barrier island. So they have a really important function. But then that kind of raises this question of if beaches should be able to withstand the challenges of these huge storms, why aren't they able to withstand the challenges that are being thrown at them now with climate change. So that's a really important question, right?
1: Mm -hmm. I'm guessing people have something
0: to do with it. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, And when you understand this problem and its solutions, you also need to understand that beaches are not static systems. Again, went over this a little bit in the previous episode, but beaches are, are constantly moving. Sediments are being added and removed from beaches constantly. And that's just... nature of these areas right they're being pounded by waves tides are going up and down rivers are putting in more sediments and so this whole system kind of exists in a in a dynamic equilibrium of sorts and so this leads me to the main problem with a lot of beaches nowadays which is that a lot of beaches aren't receiving the same kind of sediment inputs that they normally would under strictly natural conditions and that's because a lot of rivers aren't putting off the aren't giving off the same kind of sediment inputs that would normally replenish beaches under conditions of rising sea levels and conditions that are being encountered by beaches more and more often as climate change progresses so this is an important issue for a lot of beaches because 75 to 90% of beaches worldwide depend on rivers for their sediment inputs
1: i wouldn't have guessed that actually
0: yeah yeah, it's something that people don't realize. They're like, they sit on these beaches, and they see all this sand, and they don't necessarily think about where it comes from, or at least I didn't when I, whenever I would go to the beach when I was a kid or when I was growing up. It, I just kind of thought it was there.
1: Yeah, I, I thought there's like a, a local guy. I think <laughs> Terry, they called him. He, he drove around the forklift. He, he picks him up at Lowe's. You know, I got a box cutter, sliced him open. <laughs> just top it off. Somebody just
0: makes daily trips like to Arizona or something and ships the sand out to the east coast so that we can maintain the beaches. But that's where a lot of these sediments come from, right? Rivers bring a lot of sediment in from the land. And when they reach the ocean, that sediment just kind of gets dumped into the ocean and eventually winds up on beaches. And that replenishes the sediments that, that is lost to wave action and rising sea levels. But here in North America and throughout the world, really, a lot of the dams and reservoirs that we've put up on rivers have provided a remarkable way for sediments to be removed from rivers because the dams slow down the rivers and allow for the sediment to fall to the bottom of the reservoir formed behind the dam so and when the water is eventually released from the dam it has a much lower sediment load so the way i kind of like to think about this is if you've ever seen like one of those fancy like crystal decanters that people use for liquor or wine or something um so when you pour the liquid out of the decanter, the sediment kind of stays at the bottom, but the liquid is able to flow out, right? Mm-hmm. That's basically what happens in, at a dam on a much larger, more complicated scale, right? All the sediment backs up behind the dam, and when the water is released, it doesn't have the same kind of sediment load. So, eventually, when the water reaches the ocean, there just isn't the same amount of sediment that's being put into this system. So, that's the problem in and of itself. Now, here's where I talk about solutions. So the main one that we usually employ when talking about
1: uh, beach replenishment is... Terry, we send him out with the forklift. We we drive him out to the dams now, actually. Got him <laughs> he kind of fills it up and just ships it back. You know, you're joking about that, but that's actually not
0: that far off. <laughs> 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 I mean... Terry, Terry in real life is going in the opposite direction, but that's not far off, actually, because the main solution that a lot of uh, coastal communities employ to counter this problem is what's known as shoreline replenishment. So it involves taking sediments from offshore and bringing it onto the beach to replenish the lost sediment from rising seas or wave action. So it basically turns the beach into a construction zone for a while. If you're ever on a beach and have seen a bunch of bulldozers there, especially during the off-season, like from Labor Day to Memorial Day, there's a decent chance that it's related to this process. Like, here in Maryland, uh, this happens every four years to the beaches in Ocean City, and it basically takes up that entire fall, winter, and spring because they have to replenish the entire length of the beach every four years to counteract the effect of essentially losing sediments from dams. So that's what I mean when I say it's not that far off. Instead of going to the reservoirs landward, Terry is instead getting on a boat, going out into the ocean and collecting sediment from the from the ocean there, and then bringing it back up onto the beach with his Just forklift. Just give him
1: a rake. He has to pull it back in. <laughs> no, I actually, I got to see this process once. I went to the Outer Banks, but I went right at the end of the tourism season, early September, mm-hmm. and I... We saw all the boats out there that were uh, dredging up the sand.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember I was, in, uh, I was in Bethany, actually, one time in late September, early October, and they had a whole area of the beach fenced off, and they had um, a bunch of bulldozers on the shore, and they had a ship out at sea, and the ship was just pulling sediment up, and they had this big tube that was bringing all the sediment in and pumping it in, and they just pump it up onto the beach and then break it out and make it you know, all nice and neat, and that's how they replenish the beach, because the rivers that normally do this naturally aren't doing the job anymore because of human action. Another potential solution that's been kicked around for a while is what I like to call glass bottle replenishment. So we use and throw away thousands, if not millions of glass bottles every day. The question here is how do we use them effectively instead of just kind of throwing them into a landfill, right? Some people say we recycle them, other people have suggested that we try something a little different because it turns out that the material that makes up glass bottles is very similar to the stuff that makes up grains of sand on a beach. So in essence, we could replace sand on a beach with bits of broken glass.
1: Hopefully they grind it up a little beforehand.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they would tumble the glass and treat it so that it lacks the sharp edges that wouldn't cut your feet. Uh, So you wouldn't have to like wear shoes on the beach the same way you'd wear shoes in a public pool and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) You know, it would feel like natural sand because in essence, that's what it is. It's pretty similar chemically. So there's this idea that we could kind of make up for these sediment losses with essentially bits of broken glass, which is kind of a cool idea. I think I'm
1: assuming that glass could also have other uses Oh,
0: certainly. Certainly. I mean, people can effectively recycle glass.
1: Yeah, I'm I feel like there'd be more of a pressure from industries to recycle it into anything else pretty much, you know? Sure. It is essentially taking all this potential material for manufacturing and quite literally just dumping it on the beach.
0: <laughs> yes. But the other side of this, the other side of that argument is that It was all going to be trash anyway. How much worth worth does it really have? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like people were just going to throw it in the ground and leave it there. Until it doesn't biodegrade because glass biodegrades at a really, really slow rate. You know? So either you, I guess, melt it down and go through this incredibly energy intensive process to recycle it. Or you grind it up and use it to replenish beaches. There are really two sides to that coin. I could see either argument there, but it is good to know that we do have secondary uses for glass bottles beyond just throwing them away, you know, Mm -hmm. but with both of these methods, whether we're replenishing the beaches with bits of broken glass or the way that is more commonly done with sediments from offshore, there are major drawbacks. The big one being that they seriously disrupt the rhythm of natural beach systems because Beach ecosystems, from the microscopic organisms living between the sand grains to the shorebirds that feed on them, are adjusted to a very specific size of sand grain. So, changing that will disrupt the whole this whole system. So, if you just dump a whole bunch of sand onto a beach, for us, it's it doesn't really make that much of a difference because we're like sand is sand is sand. It's all kind of the same. But for these organisms that live and depend on beaches, it's it's not. They are used to a certain size of sand grain and so if you dump sand from a different place it might not be the same kind of sand it might be a slightly different size and you have to account for that especially when you're trying to match bits of broken glass to the sand on a beach that can become somewhat tricky and while these systems are used to change because these islands are shifting and moving back and forth and shorelines are changing all the time that kind of change happens more slowly right so they have time to adjust whereas when we do beach replenishment it happens over the course of a few months, right? So these systems and these organisms don't really have as much time to adapt and kind of change their way of life a little bit to account for the change that's occurred on their beach.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a system shock if it happens all at once. Right, right, exactly. I mean, that's the whole basis of climate change. It's just too much too quickly. Right, and that's,
0: That kind of gets to a point that a lot of people bring up about climate change, which is that, sure, the climate is changing now, but the climate has always been changing in Earth's history, right? So why is it such a big deal that it's happening now? Well, the answer to that would just be, like you mentioned, the pace at which it's happening. You know, like those other times when the climate was changing were due to natural causes and were dramatic for sure, but they happened on a much slower case either that or they happened very quickly and they resulted in the death of the vast majority of life on earth so like sure those were due to natural processes but in either case we don't want that to happen you know
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but that's another discussion entirely and arguably a whole podcast series anyway for birds in particular though dumping new sand onto a beach means covering up basically their entire food source with a whole bunch of inedible crap. So it's like someone covering your dinner plate with several layers of saran wrap and tinfoil. And for birds which rely upon these food sources to feed their young, this is a really serious problem. They're forced to basically relocate or die off. And in extreme situations, in areas of really, really valuable habitat, sometimes these beaches are valuable habitat for migratory birds. They rely on these specific beaches as a major refueling point on these long journeys but these kinds of problems can be counteracted with a number of different methods one of which is to do beach replenishment uh, in a number of small installments instead of one large project so this would allow the organisms living in the beach sands to populate the new sediment as it's added right so instead of dumping like a couple feet of sand on the beach at once you would maybe only dump like an inch or two at a time and kind of work your way slowly back Another thing to do is to make the use of natural beach currents to slowly distribute the sediments over a beach because beaches have these natural currents which run parallel to the shore. So you can kind of put most of the sediment on the quote-unquote upstream side of the beach and then let it slowly wash downstream and distribute that way. And this would also mean that a lot less of the beach would have to be a construction zone and it would disrupt less wildlife, right? So you could just focus on restoring one area of the beach and kind of let the natural currents do their thing and do the rest of the work for you, right? So there are problems and then ways to counteract those problems, all of which kind of vary in their effectiveness. But really the overarching point here is that the solution of beach replenishment in and of itself and then the solutions to the problems that beach replenishment causes Are really just like symptoms of this root problem that ultimately threatens beaches. And that's because, and that is that the energy of waves and storms still exists. So until we solve these root problems of sea level rise and increased storm energy and a lack of sediment replenishment, really we're just kind of kicking the can down the road.
1: You're just, you're treating it, you're not actually fixing the problem.
0: Right. Right, you're putting
1: exactly. a band-aid on it, some duct tape, it's running a couple more miles, but you're not addressing it.
0: Right, right, exactly. We really, What we really have to do here to help a lot of beaches throughout the continent is to find ways to counteract the desedimentation effect of dams and reservoirs to really make sure that they can, you know, replenish the beaches the way they naturally would. Um, in a lot of areas... There, there is a focus on removing unused dams, but even this can be somewhat controversial, right? Because if you remove a dam, it means that you're going to flood a lot of land downstream. And sure, it means that you gain land upstream, but the upstream land is not necessarily owned by the same people who own the downstream land. So the people who live downstream are going to be like, what the heck? You just flooded all my land. Whereas the people upstream are going to be like, woohoo, I get all this free land now, you know? So dam removal in and of itself is somewhat of a fraught subject in some areas. So basically we need this, a seriously multifaceted approach to preserve beaches for the long term for future generations.
1: There's just so many moving parts to it. Yeah. And yeah, removing all the dams does sound like such an easy solution right at the start, but I'm sure there's legal issues. There are legal issues. There are moral issues. um, There are ethical issues, like
0: in terms of what you value more. Because if you're talking about a dam that provides power to an entire area, you know, is it worth removing that dam and depriving that region of power to then allow for the resedimentation of a beach that could be thousands of miles away?
1: Just put a spigot on the bottom? (laughs) <laughs> it would
0: have to be a very wide spigot to allow all that sediment to get through we
1: let it run for half an hour you know, drain out some of the sediment we stop, I mean, we can do that every couple years yeah <laughs> well I mean the other thing too is that as all the sediment backs up on the dam
0: it can cause issues for the dam itself too so there are so many different wrinkles to this entire problem that span over thousands and thousands of miles worth of rivers And ultimately, all the way to the beach. So, it's a really interesting problem to consider and a really complex one as well. So, that's why I said that like the whole episode, this whole piece wouldn't necessarily be all doom and gloom and all problems because there are solutions that we've implemented in a lot of areas, but those solutions aren't universal. So, we have to think of different complex solutions to problems in different areas to really solve this
1: problem. Until then, Terry's keeping busy. No job security. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep, make sure we have a make sure we have a very very large overtime budget for Terry.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. The whole state of Maryland—they just hired him.
0: It's just him. <laughs> he's he's putting in all kinds of work. Though he does, he works with crazy efficiency. He's no,
1: he's great at his job.
0: He's really grinding, man. He's coming in clutch. Otherwise, Ocean City would be in serious trouble. But. Yeah, that's my piece. And so for the time being, let's all just have
1: faith in Terry. Okay, well, that's I thought that was really cool. The river thing, I did not know. I just assumed the sediment would come from ocean currents.
0: Some of it does, but the thing about those currents is that those ocean ocean currents are the kind of upstream, quote-unquote, currents that I referred to earlier. You know, like anyone who's been on the beach or has been in the ocean near a beach, will kind of like notice themselves drifting in a certain direction if they're there long enough, you know? You kind of look up and you're like, oh, how did I start moving south or moving north? That's that longshore current that I was alluding to. So those currents do replenish beaches with new sediment, but the sediment kind of at the beginning of that current has to come from somewhere, you know?
1: Okay, well, really cool. And that actually... Relates a lot to my topic. I mean, they're both beaches, so I guess it was to be expected. True enough. So, I'll give a little little intro first. One thing every country wants to have is a beach. Yeah. I mean, in the U.S. alone, tourism generates about $1.9 trillion. And some countries, almost a third of their GDP, these are usually island countries, are based in tourism alone. And... It's for great reason. Beaches are pretty great. I like beaches.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Also we're also worth noting during this episode is that up until about two years ago, Aaron had never been to a beach.
1: No, I had been to a beach. I hadn't been to Ocean City.
0: Okay, but we were gonna go we we're gonna go to a beach for a week. And I asked him, I was like, Aaron, what do you want to do when you're on the beach? And he goes, I wanna dig a hole. <laughs> I just wanna dig a really big hole.
1: I like, I made a big hole.
0: He did. And it was very large, but that's like an answer that a seven-year-old would give. And then the seven-year-old would go to the beach and dig a big hole and be like, all right, cool. I did that. I can move on. <laughs> and I was like, Aaron, why do you want to dig a hole? And he's like, I've never really been to the beach before.
1: I hadn't been since I was like eight. Uh, I just had a long break from beaches. Yeah. But <laughs> so Bottom
0: line, up until about two years ago, Aaron's experience with beaches was uh, a, a little bit uneven, shall we say. Yeah,
1: I dug my hole. It was a great hole.
0: He did, and I helped him do it. And yeah, so it was a fantastic hole.
1: <laughs> so beaches, lots of things you can do. Dig holes, uh, being <laughs> yeah. the best one. But whether it's surfing, swimming, fishing, just relaxing, is a lot to offer. So, of course, beaches get crowded. I mean, realistically, a beach can only hold so many people. So... What if we would just expand the beach? What if we just made it bigger? Okay. Surely bring in a lot more tourism, be great for the economy, right? Surely this would be great for the environment and the local ecosystem as well. Right. right? And think about how much extra money Terry would make. (laughs) Terry would be rolling around in dough. So I'm going to be talking about the man-made islands of the United Arab Emirates and Dubai specifically. I'll start with the history of them. And then I'll try to get into the impacts they have on marine life. All right. That sounds interesting. Keep going. Yeah, it is really cool. It, this was a huge rabbit hole. It was a much bigger topic than I thought it was going to be at the start.
0: All so right.
1: I'll try my best to cover everything. So United Arab Emirates are a group of kind of United city states forming a country. They're situated in the Middle East and lie along the Persian Gulf and the Arab Sea. Dubai has the largest capital of the Emirates, and its economy revolves greatly around tourism and luxury. So you have a lot of nice beaches, a lot of five-star hotels, malls, major trade hub. This is like the ultimate business getaway. Basically
0: everything I can't afford right now. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's not <laughs> for the average Joe, that's for sure. So historically, a lot of the country's economy has relied on oil, which you know is finite. When the oil dries up, so does the economy. So the government focused on expanding their tourism and beachfront real estate by just building islands. The idea was they can use this expanded land to build luxury hotels, vacation homes, malls, shopping centers, etc. basically become like an Uber vacation hotspot for the wealthy. How
0: large are these islands?
1: I, I'll get to that in a sec. Okay. So these man-made islands began construction in the early 2000s. It was led by a real estate company called Nakheel which is now owned by the Dubai government and start off with the first Palm Island, Palm Jumeirah. This wasn't fully an Island. It's an extension of the coastline along a thin stretch and it splits off in the 17 fronds or what they call it. It's supposed to resemble a Palm leaf. Like if you look at it from space, it kind of looks like a Palm leaf. I think it looks more like a rib cage to me, but essentially it goes out straight and then splits off into 17 little bits. I, mean, I I will admit, it, I don't think they're great practically, but from space, they do look kind of cool in the aerial photos. I'll give them credit for that. They, you know, they follow the, uh, the plans to a T.
0: Well, yeah, but a lot of stuff really looks really cool from space and not so great up close on the Earth's surface.
1: Well, this is one of them. <laughs> so, like I said, early 2000s, this started. And before the first one even finished, they already kickstarted a bunch of other ones. In addition to uh, Palm Jumariah, they have Palm Jebel Ali, which is basically the same, but just scaled up, and Palm Daira, which is even larger, although it looks more like a turtle shell to me than a palm. And there have been other projects since then. There's Maritime City and Waterfront, which are kind of just regular expansions. They're not super extravagant. It's more just like another square added to the coastline. Okay. But the world islands are a whole other ballgame. This is a group of 300 islands. You said 300? 300 islands, and they're all roughly shaped to resemble a miniature globe. So if you look at this from space, you'll see a barrier around them, and then you'll see a North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, and they're all roughly split into smaller islands to resemble the countries. Wait,
0: but why 300? Like, are they trying to keep the Persians out? Like, what the hell is going on?
1: <laughs> uh, It's just one of those, like, Uber spending projects to attract developers. It's not even done, and they've already sold 60% of the real estate. Wait, really? Yeah. It. Whoa. Okay. Most of these are not finished, and they started early 2000s. The World Islands itself, they all range about 3 to 10 acres in size. Okay. All right. Yeah. And the construction for all these islands is about the same, more or less. And it is pretty much just putting sand in a pile.
0: That's it? They don't like...
1: That's pretty much it.
0: Put in any kind of additional support or like dunes or, you know, palm trees to help retain sediment or anything?
1: Really, it's essentially just a sand castle on steroids. Uh, They've been described as letting a child play SimCity in real life with a multi-billion dollar budget.
0: Well, that just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen.
1: So what they do is they form a circle and they form these circles with rocks and then they'll layer them with sand and erosion resistant textiles to form a barrier to protect the inner sandbank. So they do have a barrier going around it. But even then, there's not too much going into that. That's mainly just big rocks.
0: Okay, but you made it sound like we were just sending out a bunch of like workers with like a with like sand pails and having them turn the sand pails upside down a few million times to produce these islands like. That's
1: how that's how they're making the highlands. Wait, what? <laughs> they're I mean, you, you said Terry. That we're like, Terry's been working overtime like crazy. but you
0: said you said there were like rocks and 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 you know anti erosion materials that's just around
1: it. The actual islands are just sand, and they can't bring in sand. Of course, a lot of uh, United Arab Emirates is a desert. That sand apparently doesn't work well because it's the wrong texture? Wrong granule size? I'm not sure. They said that when you mix it with water, it's just too sludgy. So they actually have to dredge the sand up and then kind of shape it into these islands. They use a technique that involves vibrations to just compact the sand into place. I mean, it's just sand. All the land is sand. It took over 3.2 billion cubic feet of sand to create the uh, Palm Island of Palm Jumeirah. It took... 3.2 billion cubic feet and it's just over 2.2 square miles.
0: Wow. That's a that's a hell of a business trip for Terry, man.
1: <laughs> now he doesn't get to he doesn't get to take a trip there. He's just working there.
0: He doesn't actually He's... get
1: to sit back and enjoy it in the end. So, like I said, this whole thing is only 2.2 square miles. Now, that's just the surface area. The circle itself is much bigger. However, it's like super thin strips. Because you know they want everyone to have beachfront property, and the way they do it is just to make everything super thin, so it takes up a lot more space. And as of now, that's the only one that's complete. It started in two thousand one and finished in two thousand eight, right in the middle of the recession, had an extremely elaborate opening ceremony, which cost about thirty million, I think, for that party, which I'm sure left a really bad impression on all the working class people who were struggling at the time. So, the island cost tens of billions to create it's hard to find the exact numbers for this because the real estate company was eventually absorbed by the government and it does seem like it's pretty much just a money pit now i will say they are selling the real estate i mean they've sold most of it before anything was finished okay and this one they actually they have connected to the mainland there's a large highway and an undersea tunnel i wouldn't say it's a huge success Initially it was attended the house like 100,000 to 120,000 people and I can't find an exact number of year-round residents. It ranges from 10 to 80,000. 80,000 is closer but if only 10,000 people live there?
0: Oh, okay, you said you so 10,000 to 80,000 not like the number 10 all the way up to 80,000.
1: Not just 10 people. One of them's Terry, he's 10% of the population. Yeah, so seems, aerial views show that it seems largely underdeveloped. Even though it's there, it's been open since 2008, and a lot of the real estate has been bought, not much is being done with it. Okay, But the other islands are in much worse state. And because construction of these started long before the first one was completed, there's been so many financial setbacks and global crises. The islands aren't done. It's not clear when they will be. They're just sitting there. You can see aerial views, and it's just sand like the, the one has been developed, but a lot of them it's just piles of sand. Maybe some like a couple foundations. There is a uh, the remnants of a bridge that wasn't fully constructed. It's Just all been halted. It's just sitting there. Hmm. And like I said, there is uh, the world archipelago with the 300 islands. Only actually three or so of them have anything on them. I think it's Greenland and Lebanon are the two, and I think a couple might have some more development soon.
0: So really, it's like the last ten minutes of the three hundred, where almost all of them are dead. There are only a few of them left.
1: And they're vibing.
0: Yeah, right before they just get destroyed by the entire Persian army.
1: Hey, he got that one spear. Took off a. Well, took off an earring. Made him bleed. It
0: always seemed like that last spear throw really made, really didn't do much to Xerxes besides like just make him like the Joker for half his face. I
1: like how you can remember this perfectly, and I am struggling to remember anything from that movie. I remember the spear throw. I remember there's the the weird, uh, like hunchback guy that betrayed them, and wasn't Anthony Hopkins was narrating the ending.
0: No, 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 no! It wasn't Anthony Hopkins. It was, um, it was Faramir from Lord of the Rings. That actor did like all the all the narration, but only appeared in like eight or nine scenes in the movie. But he did all the narration. He did more narration than he did actual like on screen acting.
1: All right. Yeah, I, I, I do not remember that movie.
0: Honestly, it, in my opinion, it's probably not necessary to remember. Like, there is some cool stuff that happens in there, but mostly it's just a lot of weird stuff and a bunch of historical inaccuracies. So, I mean, if you enjoy it, more power to you. But personally, I I don't know. It gets probably like a, a B minus C plus for me as a movie, in my opinion.
1: I'll take your word for it.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure that when people tuned into the Beaches episode, they didn't expect to hear a 30 second review of a 300.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that they're glad they did. I sure hope so. Anyways, that sums up the islands pretty much. Huge, like financial undertaking, lots of setbacks, lawsuits. Legal issues, money issues, and, you know, had a couple hiccups, you know, recession, COVID along the way.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a big one.
1: But, you know, they're still being built. I think everything's halted, but as of now, the government has not said they're going to stop anytime soon. They fully intend to build all these. Hmm. And you can visit the one that has been constructed, Palm Jumariah. Yeah, it's just it's
0: just kind of like a preview of what might be there in, oh, I don't know, 60 or 70 years by the sound of it.
1: Yeah, it. Sounds about right. So now I want to discuss the ecological impacts and the environmental impacts of these islands.
0: Yes, this is what I've been dying to ask about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I will say the history of this is great. I found a lot of really cool YouTube documentaries on it. It's just fascinating to see how they were built. All the setbacks. Uh, I strongly urge everyone to take a look at it. Anyways, so we have these man made islands that, despite a few minor hiccups, are still being built out of sand. What's the first major issue you think is happening?
0: Uh, ecologically or just generally? Just overall. Overall, um, probably finding a place to get all the sand, a place to get all the labor. Are hmm. we
1: established Terry scooping it all out of the ocean itself? <laughs> no, they're going to recede. It's sand. It's going to erode away. Yes. As yes. beaches are happening. This was an issue from the very beginning. The Abu Dhabi Environmental Agency warned that with the current rate of climate change, sea levels could rise about 9 meters or 29 feet. A lot of these islands are only 10 feet or so above sea level. And other projections show they may be totally gone within 40 to 50 years, like completely covered.
0: So before the project
1: is even finished, probably. I mean, some of them have been under construction for about 20 years, and they're not even halfway done. So, yeah. They'll yeah. be underwater by the time they're
0: finished. That's like buying a ticket to see the, the string quartet on the Titanic.
1: You know, those last three minutes. Breathtaking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sure and you'd pay a pretty penny to see it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is like that. It, this is definitely a long term project. I mean, you want it to turn a profit, but you also want it to stay around to keep generating money. I don't know if it's going to break even at the way things are going.
0: So really, they're not building a beach community so much as they're laying the foundations for Atlantis.
1: Yeah. You know what? The archaeologists, uh, 100 years from now, they might have a field day with it.
0: There are going to be all kinds of history channel documentaries on this. It's going to be the basis for so many conspiracy theories. It's going to be great.
1: So uh, the world islands, which I mentioned, which, mind you, also are not fully complete, are already sinking back into the sea. The sand is filling in the channels between the islands and gradually leveling it all out. This is reported from the head of Penguin Marine, which is one of the companies that's actually part of the project. They've been transferring materials and people for construction on these islands, so they've definitely got a vested interest in making sure that it stays up and running. So if they say it's sinking, you should probably believe them on it.
0: Yeah, so even they're pessimistic about this now?
1: Yeah, even they are. Mind you, all the environmental agencies have been warning this for a while. And they're going to keep
0: going with this project?
1: They have not announced they're stopping. Palm Jumari, the one that is complete and does have buildings and people on it It is reported to be sinking about five millimeters or roughly three sixteenths of an inch per year according to a ground surveying company called fergo npa although the dubai government dismisses these claims okay so we have pretty solid evidence that shocker these are just sand banks very eroding as sand does he's pretty good at that that's like one of the things it's known for
0: that and being coarse and rough and getting everywhere
1: i uh, i read an article and uh, the guy said i ain't a religious man but i'm pretty sure something in the bible was said about building your house on sand or a rock (laughs) (laughs) which yeah holds true in this case
0: (laughs) i think i want to buy that guy a beer he seems like a fun guy to talk to
1: (laughs) So the first obvious solution is to build a breakwater that surrounds the islands and prevents erosion and strong waves, which they did. However, this prevents new problems. This causes the water inside and around the islands to become stagnant. So the water around the beaches is very salty and it's very hot due to the decreased current and relatively shallow depth. that's heating it a lot more. It's evaporating it. So you're kind of trapping it in. You know, it said originally when it was constructed... They wanted to have the water circulate out from the island every 13 days, which really is not a lot. That's actually pretty slow movement.
0: That's very slow movement.
1: I mean, they need that to maintain the sand, but at the same time, you're getting some really stanky water. It's reported that there were large algae and bacteria blooms. The water was discolored and silty. Yeah.
0: No, there are bowel movements that occur at a faster rate of speed. <laughs>
1: Not to mention, most of the marine life didn't really want to enter the waters, besides jellyfish, which there are a lot of.
0: It's almost funny how, like, when almost nothing else wants to live in an area, what what are you going to find there? Jellyfish. But jellyfish.
1: The one thing that'll make your life miserable is the only thing that wants to be there.
0: Right. Right. Once you've totally destroyed, like, the quality of a habitat in any kind of saltwater area... The one thing that's going to want to stick around? Jellyfish.
1: So, like I said, this doesn't make for a great swimming area. They actually open the breakwaters up to allow more water current, which, you know, will erode the sand because the water was nasty. Which, you know, that should be a red flag right from the get-go. The construction is a whole other issue, so all the stirred-up sediment from dredging the sand has affected the local ecosystem. Not a surprise. So, major decrease in water clarity. Lots of sand and silt are being released into the water.
0: Again, yeah. Also not surprising.
1: The islands themselves have actually altered the wave patterns of sediment transport. So, it's kind of taking the sediment and, you know, dumping it on ecosystems like oyster beds and coral reefs and, I guess, seagrass. (laughs) What do you call a bunch of seagrass? A meadow? A bed. Okay, bed. And seagrass beds. I think it's bed, yeah. We'll say bed. Anything can be a bed
0: as long as you got a, as long as you got a sleeping bag. Anything could be a bed.
1: <laughs> That's true. This is all being covered in sediment, and not to mention this is very fine sediment. So when it does settle, waves can easily disrupt it again and just cast it out once more. Another thing is, one study found that the palm jumirai has actually altered the natural flow of the wind and increased erosion. To other parts of the coastline that were already there. The natural coastline is getting more erosion because of these artificial beaches.
0: Well, yeah.
1: I mean, that's what people
0: don't realize about a lot of techniques that we use for shoreline stabilization, which is that even if you try to stabilize a shoreline by employing, you know, breakwaters or, uh, or jetties or things like that, that you know, seem to anchor a shoreline in place, that erosional force that is still causing problems doesn't go away. So you're still going to have those same erosional forces that are going to be like more effective in other areas of your shoreline.
1: Mm-hmm. It's making it worse everywhere else. Uh, was, and like I said, increased sediment from construction, that's choking out wildlife. Another thing is fish. The sediment can choke the gills of fish and makes it more difficult for them to breathe. So we have increased mortality. Especially smaller fish can really hurt them. Not to mention the construction itself is just stressful. It's a lot of movement. It's a lot of noise. That's also found to be increasing mortality of young fish. And to top it all off, around two square miles of coral reefs were destroyed for the project. Of course they were. The area's that were the most ideal for this construction also happened to be the biodiversity hotspots in this area. So it's like, yeah, you couldn't uh, put it anywhere else. Of course. They, uh, what's,
0: again, what's truly ironic about this whole situation is that to make a tourism hotspot in this area, all they really had to do was just, you know, build a larger community on the shore That was far enough away to, you know, avoid the impacts of shoreline erosion, hire a great marketing team to promote their coral reefs, and then just host a bunch of tours of their coral reefs. Like, believe it or not, people really, really want to see coral reefs.
1: I know, especially beaches are natural. That's a natural tourism thing you're going to see. Right. People want there to be natural things like even seagulls. I found that seagulls do not want to nest on these islands. A lot of shorebirds. They don't want to nest there. Not a surprise. It's covered in people.
0: If gulls don't want to live where you're, where you're living, you're either very far inland or you're in deep, deep shit.
1: I will say, Dubai's coastline is already very well developed. Like it, it's pretty crowded there. This is a very developed city, but. I feel like in the end, they could have just not done this and saved money. Honestly, you go through all this, it's going to make things worse,
0: especially if you're destroying coral reefs, which are, you know, which could have already been a huge source of tourism revenue for you.
1: Mm -hmm. And this area did not have great coral reefs to begin with. It's already threatened by a high salinity and temperatures, which is already, you know, pretty rough for coral. But, you know, the coral you did have left, it took a lot of it away.
0: Yeah, but my point here is that if you're going to put all this money into building new islands, you probably could have put the same kind of money and resources into your own coral reefs. Mm -hmm. And in the end, achieved about the same amount of tourism revenue as you are probably going to achieve with these islands.
1: Mm -hmm. So surveys have found that the fish biodiversity surrounding the islands and within them is relatively poor. Biomass overall is also pretty low. Because, like I said, the areas they built on were the biodiversity hotspots.
0: Yeah, not shocked at all.
1: I do know that whenever cities have to develop, that's how things go. People need space, and that will destroy nature. But the whole point of this was to get more beaches, and beaches are a natural thing. You could have just kept the ones you have. Correct. Like, I'm not going to... I'm not gonna critique someone like if an area is being turned into suburbs destroys a forest, I mean, does it suck a little bit, but people need to live somewhere that I understand. But this whole thing was just not necessary
0: that 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 does suck a, a lot, but that's a whole other discussion that's a very different situation than what we're dealing with now.
1: well, it's it's like tearing down a rainforest and rebuilding a new rainforest but the trees have Starbucks in them. (laughs) Yes, that I think is far more accurate. (laughs) And all the animals are gone. Everything that makes the rainforest is gone. And you're barely propping the trees up.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're just holding the trees up with long strands of duct tape and, and hoping that they hold up against the wind.
1: Yeah. And like I said, biodiversity is great for tourism. Opportunities for fishing, snorkeling, scuba diving. That's great. That brings in tourism. That generates money. It gives you precedence to preserve those environments as well. Right. And like I said, you could have used all
0: that money and just hired like a really, really good marketing team to do all this promotion for you and generate the same kind of tourism and attention.
1: So I will give them some credit. There are efforts to reintroduce coral into the Palm Gemariah along the breakwater. There's actually been several attempts at creating artificial reefs with some success at attracting wildlife back to the region. Biodiversity has increased since construction, but there's still some skepticism. It's like, yes, it's increased, but if you didn't do anything, what would it look like now? You know? Yeah. Can't really know that because, well, it's gone. Uh, And not everything adjusts well to these breakwater environments and these artificial reefs. I do think it's good for bivalves and things like barnacles. But the one study I found said that coral might not really want to live there. It's not a great environment for them. might be a bit too rough.
0: Okay, but if the silver lining, ecologically speaking, of your coastal ecology project is that it created a good habitat for barnacles, I'm sorry, you've messed up.
1: Yeah, not to mention...
0: Barnacles will live just about everywhere.
1: Oh, the artificial reefs, they're just sinking whatever. They have sank planes and boats. They're, they're creating shipwrecks to create artificial reefs. I do think this is actually for tourism, so they can take people scuba diving to see these. But it's like, are you really trying? I yeah. Yeah,
0: but again, barnacles will live just about anywhere. That's like, That's like me selling a house. Somewhere and being like, sure, this house is a complete piece of garbage and you probably don't want to do anything with this house. But hey, I created a
1: great habitat for termites. Oh, jellyfish. They like it there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jellyfish, their population is doing great. (laughs) They're expanding. They actually do pretty well with climate change and they have few predators, which are also not doing well. So a lot of jellyfish. In fact, I even looked at TripAdvisor and I just read through uh, all the comments people had about jellyfish in the waters. (laughs) If you have to put up nets to keep out jellyfish, (laughs) you know something's up. If you have to put up nets in an artificial beach on an artificial island, you might as well have just stayed in the pool at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's my piece. Honestly, I feel like there's a lot more to be discussed about this topic. I didn't know how big it was at the start, and I'd love to revisit this again. There is. Yeah, I encourage you all look it up on your own time.
0: That is utterly ridiculous. All right. So you want to think about topics for next time? Ooh, what did you have in mind? I really want to do Deep Sea Part 2.
1: We we did it so recently. Uh... We can't do a part two right off the bat.
0: Alright. Alright. What what about uh what if we take this a little bit offshore and talk about coral reefs?
1: You know what there's always something to talk about a coral reef.
0: I'm in. Okay, I, I got something in my own already.
1: No, I don't, but it's a coral reef. I'll find something. Alright, cool. Alright, with that decided, you want to take us out? I will I have time? Let's find out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like or review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have suggestions for a future episode, you can reach us at souppotpodcasts at twitter.com. Or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com.
0: All right. Sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Pere. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.